Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina, season two, where I take experts and actually real life people and talk to them about practical tips that you can implement into your life to get healthier, and in today's case, to potentially improve your athletic performance. So my guest today is Dr. Jose Antonio. He is the founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and the editor-in-chief of the journal of the ISSN as the abbreviation. It's a long word. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to talk to you. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I think, uh, you know, I love talking about sports nutrition and supplements, so fire away. Yeah, and this is, and I just want, uh, you know, listeners or viewers to know that the purpose of the, I mean, and this is, I actually, I like to take science from sports nutrition and apply it to every patient. I think even if you're consider yourself an athlete or not, I think there's a lot to be learned from sports nutrition. So I really appreciate you giving us your expertise and insight because um, I think this is a topic that's really relevant to everyone. So let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, and this is something that I also talk to patients a lot about. So I'm really interested to hear what you say, but let's talk about nutrition and, and athletic performance, and specifically about nutrient timing. So how we should be eating pre, post, during a workout to optimize our workout. And most people aren't necessarily competing that are listening to this, but certainly interested in getting in better shape, maybe losing a few pounds of fat and gaining a few pounds of muscle. So what should we be doing? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting about the nutrient timing category is that originally, um, again, we applied it to athletes and the question often came up, what should I consume after I work out? Now, obviously not all of us are competitive athletes. I mean, you're athletic, I'm athletic. We're not making money doing athletic stuff, but why do you take advantage of nutrient timing? Primarily to help you recover so that the next day you train, you'll feel better, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when you look at the nutrient timing data in general, there seems to be some evidence to show that if you consume particularly if it's protein pre or post workout, it seems to help the recovery process so that, you know, the next time you work out, um, you know, you, you, you'll be better off. Now, the question is um, if you skip that timing area, let's say you decide, you know what, I work out, I don't want to consume anything. I'm just not hungry. Will it matter that much? Now, this is where it gets a little tricky. If you're a competitive athlete, everything you do matters. So every tiny thing matters. If you're a recreational athlete, and again, there are ranges of this. There are some recreational athletes who, you know, win local five kilometer races here. And it's like for them, it probably matters. What about the person I see walking around the block? They, you know, they walk their dog three times a week. Does it matter for them? Probably not. So it really depends on your level of athleticism or how much you train. If you train a lot and you're really serious about recovery, it definitely would help if you consume something, particularly post-workout. It makes no sense at all to skip that. And also, like I work with a lot of uh, college athletes and, and people who are competitive but not professional. It just helps them recover. And it also gives them an opportunity to consume protein for because I don't know if you work with younger people from 18 to 25. A lot of them, their diets are awful. And if you could just get them to consume protein after they work out, it's, it, it actually helps quite a bit. 
Yeah, and I, I I will tell you, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. You know, I I see a lot of like you know pre peri and postmenopausal women struggling with increase in belly fat, and I'm really pushing them to change their body composition. So I don't even care what the weight on the scale says. I mm-hmm. care about the ratio of the muscle to fat and their body fat percentage. And what I find is a lot of them, if they start working out at the gym, but they're not consuming adequate amounts of protein, or I really feel like there is a role for everybody post-workout if your goal is to try to build muscle. What specifically is important about that post-exercise period in terms of muscle building? Well, actually, um, we, we've done studies on post-workout protein or higher protein intakes in general in that if you consume higher protein intakes, and this is probably higher than a lot of your patients, um, at minimum, we recommend one gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo. A lot of people don't hit that. In fact, people who exercise often don't hit it. But what we have found is that it does improve body composition. Well, how does it improve body composition? Well, as you're, as you're well aware, protein has a high thermogenic effect. I mean, you consume protein, you burn a lot of calories. It might even affect, I mean, it, it might inhibit appetite. So maybe in the long run, you're consuming fewer calories. And then also, and this one's a little tricky, but it might have an effect on what we call non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT or NEAT, where the amount of calories you burn just throughout the day, not, not counting formal exercise, maybe that's elevated as well. So I think it's important to get that protein in and post-workout is, is for more or less it's a convenient time to do it because you've just worked out, you want to replenish the protein, get some fluids in and help you recover. But it is absolutely critical. If body composition is an issue, one, I think resistance training is, is critically important for that population. And two, elevating protein intake. And I guarantee you most, not just women, but most men in that age age range don't do enough of either. Yeah. And but so there's nothing I, I was under the impression that post workout was really a time where muscle protein synthesis could be optimized. And so having high quality protein, and I actually set, tell patients to try to have it in a liquid form if possible, because it's going to be digested and absorbed and go to the muscles more readily. Um, but is there science to support that? Or if I am well, I just telling them the wrong thing? <laughs> well, no, actually, you're telling the right thing, but with a caveat. If like, because I work with a lot of, I guess, high-end athletes, they're consuming, their protein intake daily is so high to begin with that the post-workout window is not as important. However, for people who are not consuming higher protein diets, that post-workout window is actually much more important. So if you're consuming, let's say, I'd say the average person consumes, let's say one, between one and 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight of protein, for them, that post-workout window, I think, is much more important than let's say the bodybuilder who's already between two and three grams per kilo. So it really depends what your total protein intake is. If it's a little low, it's I think it's a lot more important. Well, that's great to know. And can you talk a little bit also about um, the combination? Is it, do we actually need carbs to help with the absorption of the protein, optimize that with the muscle? Good question. It, it really depends on your goal. If you are an endurance athlete or you do a lot of endurance work, do you need the carbs with the protein post-workout? I guess the question, maybe the it's the wrong word. Do you need it? No. Would it help you replenish glycogen? Yes. Now, I typically don't recommend carbs post-workout. Here's why. I've never had a human being ever come up to me and say, you know, 
I'm having a hard time eating carbs. I just can't get enough carbs. <laughs> I've never met that human being. So I think because let's face it, I think carbs taste better than anything. Get those carbs later on in a meal and just focus on protein post-workout. Now, again, if you're a competitive athlete, do carbs and protein post-workout because your energy expenditure is probably so high to begin with that it doesn't matter. So get the carbs post-workout, replenish glycogen, get the protein post-workout, and that way you uh, enhance the skeletal muscle recovery. And also, just one more question about that, is that the type of protein, because a lot of people now uh, are convinced that they can't, that dairy protein is the devil, or they've chosen to (laughs) use a more, uh, you know, thoughtful lifestyle and and don't want to just want to be plant-based. So talk a little bit about the different types of protein. So whey protein uh, and casein being from milk, pea protein, and some of the more plant-based things. Does that really make a difference or is it total pro does the total protein overcome the quality and the digestibility of the protein? Great question. Uh, Total protein does trump everything. However, if you're not someone who consumes a lot of protein over the course of the day, the type or quality protein does matter. Now, most of the data on protein is typically on dairy protein, especially whey, uh, soy protein second, there's a little bit on casein, uh, some of the plant-based proteins, not much data. So the way I would rank it is this, if your protein intake is what I would call low to moderate, it does matter what the quality is. And most of, most of the data shows whey protein is better than anything. Um, casein protein might be a close second, soy protein a close second, the plant-based, other plant-based proteins are close third. However, I always say you can always make up for it with volume. So if you're a, you know, there's one vegan bodybuilder we've worked with down here. He basically makes up with it with just, he drinks like six protein shakes a day, vegan shakes, which, you know, I don't know how you do that. I couldn't possibly drink that many shakes, but he makes up for it with volume. So even though the quality might be a little less with plant-based proteins, just make up for it. And, you know, instead of consuming 20 gram shake post-workout, consume a 30 gram shake post-workout. Right. But I do think, you know, it's funny recently, I have a very good friend who's a sports nutritionist who's been working with, you know, NFL athletes for decades, really like leaning them down for the combines and then following them when they're pros. And she introduced me to a product with essential amino acids. And Mm -hmm. I would say um, I am probably not by choice, but just because my days get so crazy, on the lower end of the protein spectrum, which is probably not a good thing, but I started taking these essential amino acids. So I was always under the impression that branch chain amino acids were was, was most important for muscle because they t- contain amino acids that stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Mm-hmm. But I started taking this essential amino acid product, and I swear to God, my muscles felt different within two days. Is that possible? What? <laughs> I don't know about the two days. However, <laughs> however, you know, it's, it's interesting. You. Essential amino acids, definitely when you compare gram for gram, if you do 12 grams of essential amino acids versus 12 grams of whey protein, guess what? The essential amino acids do better when it comes to muscle protein synthesis. So there is something there. I think the reason people have not gone the essential amino acid route versus the whole protein route, honestly, is just taste. Whey protein or whatever protein you like just tastes better than just the essential amino acids. However, there's plenty of data showing the EAAs, the essential amino acids, do have a higher anabolic effect gram for gram compared to whole protein. So there's, you know, the two-day thing, you know, maybe your body's different. I don't know, but 
I'd say give it four to six weeks and, you know, you should see a difference with the essential amino acids. Yeah, I have to tell you, I, I don't, you know, normally promote products on the podcast, but the product that I get from Body Health um, tastes great. It tastes it really does. good. So it's, and it has no artificial sweeteners, which of course I try to stay away from artificial sweeteners. So, um, you know, you'll have to check that one out. But um, so, and, and I want to clarify one thing for people listening, especially women. You're not going to bulk up. You really, I mean, most women say, I don't want to lose weight because I don't want to bulk up. You know, if I think the type of exercises that you choose to do um, and, and just hormonally, especially as we get older, we don't have the hormones to bulk up. So we're talking about creating lean, metabolically active muscle that's going to keep your metabolism elevated 24 hours a day, keep blood sugar under control, lots of other health benefits. Right. I mean, you agree with that? No, that's, you know, that's absolutely true. And, and I, as you're well aware, there's probably been this sort of idea that it seems that it's hard to get women to be in a lot of these studies. A lot of studies, particularly in sports science, it's predominantly male subjects. And I'll tell you this, based on my experience doing research, it is difficult to get women to volunteer for these studies, especially when we did some of the higher protein diet studies. The first thing they would ask would be, will I gain weight? And my answer would be, well, it could be muscle weight. And the retort would be, I don't care. So, and I've been dealing with this for, you know, a couple decades that even if it's muscle weight, for whatever reason, there's a culture amongst women where weight is bad, even if it's muscle weight. And I don't know how you overcome that. Or, you know, it's just something we, as researchers, we deal with it all the time. It's like, how come there's not more women, <laughs> you know, subjects in studies? I'm like, because a lot of them don't want to volunteer. It's just sort of, you know, it's a fact and, you know, try to overcome it with education. But yeah, it's like, there's nothing wrong with gaining a couple pounds of muscle. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing, especially because we lose 3% of our muscle every decade starting yes. at the age of 30, right? So, I mean, we need to. Um, but I, I do think, I'll tell you, in my practice, I measure body fat on all my patients. I do not even let them see the number on the scale. I make them look at the body fat percentage and the muscle mass and the fat mass. And that's it. Because I do think, I mean, women as women were so like married to the number on the scale, it can make or break your day. I mean, it's, yes. it's really, and, and, but long term, having more lean body mass, more muscle is definitely from a health perspective. And by the way, you look better, you look leaner, you know, you yeah. look fit. I have plenty of skinny fat models that I see, you know, so, <laughs> um, but anyways, so speaking of muscle building, let's move on to one of your favorite supplements that, that I haven't jumped on the bandwagon yet. So you got to talk me into this, Jose. Okay. Talk about creatine. Uh, I love creatine. Okay. Um, what is it? And the, why should we all be taking it? Because you say that I know you say that. Yeah, you know what? I, in fact, I have a. It's funny. I have a reputation at my university um, that, oh my God, when the class is over, he's going to have you taking creatine and more protein. <laughs> um, so going back to the late '80s, early '90s, some of the initial work on creatine came out, and it seemed to promote increases in lean mass, increases in performance, particularly the strength power type uh, activities or sports. So we have at this point probably over 300 studies uh, looking at creatine monohydrate supplementation and. Most of it is focused on the strength power side of the continuum, but there is data showing the endurance side, it also helps performance. Now, what does creatine do? It's People think, well, it's just water weight. Actually, it's not just water weight. There's good data 
Uh, this was out of Baylor University many years ago, showing that it actually increases the amount of actin and myosin. And for those of people who don't know any biology, you know, actin and myosin are the contractile proteins of skeletal muscle. So it actually increases muscle protein. But this is where the really cool stuff comes up. There's data showing that it helps brain function, uh, particularly if you are a vegan or vegetarian because you don't eat meat and meat is the primary source of creatine, particularly fish. They actually respond better to creatine supplementation than anyone. In fact, some of the best data on enhancing cognition are actually in, in vegetarians or vegans. So that's something that's exciting. And we're starting to do more research on the cognitive side of creatine. Now, the question I often get is really related to kids. You know, what about teenagers? I'll tell you a personal story. Uh, my kids played uh, travel softball. I was the head coach. My wife was a general manager. We had our young daughters. We have twin daughters. They're seniors in college now. We had them taking a little bit of creatine when they were young in preparation for softball. We had a really great softball team. They were high-end athletes. We basically trained them like they were professional athletes. We trained the whole team like they were professional athletes because we know how to train them. And the data on creatine and safety is absolutely astounding. There's no evidence at all that it causes harm, whether it's teenagers, whether it's adult, young adults, um, even older individuals. I think their populations, uh, data on people 65 to 80 years old taking creatine. It's one of those things I think that should be a part of, if it wasn't, it's not technically essential the way certain vitamins and minerals are essential, but it's clearly essential for basic health and well-being. And, and I tell students all the time, if you don't care about gaining muscle, because most aren't really bodybuilders, you got to care about your brain. Um, we work, for instance, at our university, we work with a lot of fighters. They don't need to gain weight because they're in a weight class, but they want to protect their brain. And there's some good evidence that creatine can decrease um, the symptoms related tra to traumatic brain injuries. So, there's so many reasons to take it. I think it's important, particularly as you get older, because we atrophy, we lose lean mass. That is something that will help preserve lean body mass. It's uh, I've been taking about three grams a day. Let's see. It's 2022. I've been doing that since like 1992. I mean, I've been doing it a long time. And you're 387 years old and you look great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what about, okay. So, uh, what about, um, do you need to combine it with anything else? I mean, HMB or just straight creatine? Like yeah, cre just straight, yeah, just straight creatine monohydrate. I, I, I'm, I'm one of the few that actually likes capsules. Most people like powder. They mix it with a protein shake. But yeah. I like capsules because I get the exact amount. It's like 3.2 grams of creatine. Um, you don't have to mix it with anything. Um, you can just take it. In fact, some of the initial studies was where it's creatine powder mixed with warm water. Mm. That doesn't yeah. sound very good. Um, okay. No. Well, let's, let's, you know, I think a lot of my audience is probably interested in body composition. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say weight loss because I'm not going to feed into this scale based culture, but I am going to talk about increasing lean body mass and decreasing fat mass. I think that's somebody that every, something that everybody's interested in. So what are some other supplements that people might want to consider? I, I know I asked you in my practice, I have, I feel like I have, you know, you never know with supplements, obviously, because I make a lot of changes, but I feel like I have had some success with conjugated linoleic acid. So CLA, um, which is a type of fat. Do you, what's your take on that? If you look, here's what's interesting about CLA. If you look at the data on it, it's very, very equivocal. Um, I'd say 50% of the studies don't show any effect. And then there's a few that show some effect. So it's one of those 
it's one of those supplements that th this is my attitude uh, when people ask, should I take it? I would answer that it either helps you or has no effect. So it's one of those things you could choose to take it and might help you. The worst thing that can happen is nothing happens because there's no harmful side effects. Um, and there's a lot of supplements like that where it seems to help a small subset of people and it does nothing to others. So um, when people say I'm taking it, I'm like, hey, great. You know, just if it works for you, I'd say keep taking it. Um, and if, it, you know, if you feel like it stops working, you know, that's fine, too. Um, but okay. I wouldn't put it in my like top 10 or top three list of things. If the goal is to improve body composition, I'd probably put creatine. Well, let me backtrack. For body composition, I actually take sort of a roundabout route that I tell people not to focus so much on percent fat or lean mass or fat mass. Focus on, I tell them, pick a performance goal. Let's say you want to run a 5K in 25 minutes instead of 28 minutes. Body composition usually takes care of itself if performance goes up. So what helps performance? Creatine, protein, uh, even caffeine pre-workout, uh, beetroot juice or nitrates. Uh, beta alanine, all of these things help you perform better or harder or longer. And by performing better, harder or longer, body composition takes care of itself as long as long as your diet's okay. If you're eating junk, more junk because you're training more, then, you know, that's self-defeating. Yeah. And that's something that I was going to bring up too, because I cannot tell you how many people I see in my practice who start training for their first marathon and gain weight because they think, oh, I burned X amount of calories so I yeah. can eat X amount of calories. So I think that's a really important caveat. I will tell you how I use CLA in my practice just to get your opinion on it. I actually use it to protect muscle during fat loss. I have found, especially in men, that if they're losing weight fairly rapidly, um, and I can see that they're losing lean body mass as well, too rapidly, more rapidly than I would like, I add in CLA to protect their lean body mass while they are dropping fat. And I have in dozens of patients over the, you know, time, um, found that it helps slow the loss of muscle. I don't think it does a damn thing for fat loss personally, but I do think for preservation of lean body mass, I have seen it be effective. So just, you know, that's how I use it in, in my okay. practice. And, and I really have, you know, for protecting, especially in men, um, I think it's really important. And, um, so tell us a little bit, let's talk about caffeine, because that's one that um, I think everybody is familiar with. But tell yeah. us, how, what, what's the role in, uh, in workouts? And should we be thinking about the source of caffeine, the dose? Um, there's a genetic component, fast metabolizers, yeah. you know, there's a lot of different variables. So but that's one that I think everybody is pretty familiar with. Yeah, let's assume you're one of those that responds to caffeine. You know, as you alluded to, there's a genetic component in fast metabolizers. And I think people sort of figure out through life, whether or not they respond to caffeine. I mean, there are people who could like, you know, drink three cups of coffee and fall asleep. So, but let's assume you uh, respond to caffeine. In general, most of the studies are done on just pure caffeine added to nothing. So, and the dosing is fairly, it's fairly consistent that if you consume roughly five milligrams per kilogram body weight, which is roughly for most people, that's like 200 to 300 milligrams, you know, as far as an absolute dose. That dose seems to help performance, whether it's an endurance event well, more so an endurance event than a strength power event, but it still helps some of the strength power stuff. Um, knowing that the half-life of caffeine is roughly six hours, that, you know, you could take caffeine several hours before 
training or before a race or an event, and you'll still get you know, an ergogenic or a performance enhancing effect. Now, you can certainly take too much caffeine. I think the high end would be maybe six milligrams per kg body weight. Anything above that might get a headache, might get vertigo or, or some other negative effect. But in general, outside of creatine, there's probably more data on caffeine being an ergogenic aid than any other supplement. And I will throw a caveat in there that there's actually, if you look at the energy drink category, and as you know, most energy drinks are, are caffeine-based, there's actually a lot of data on energy drinks showing that energy drinks improve performance. But again, it's based on, it's really based on the caffeine dose for the most part. I mean, they add taurine and they add sugar and we know sugar helps performance. But again, those are things that should be limited primarily to pre-workout or pre-race uh, supplementation. It's uh, Other than that, I mean, I guess some people will consume caffeine in the form of coffee all day, but that's unrelated to athletic performance. So is there any benefit in terms of, again, going back to body composition in terms of fat reduction as well? Or is it just that you're working out harder, so you're burning more calories, so you're burning more fat? Yeah, it's it's the latter. It's you're able to work out harder and longer. And that's what ultimately in the long run will improve body composition. Do people have, uh, I feel like, you know, I, I actually, I, I do do caffeine pills um, mm -hmm. pre-workout. Um, I, I just, uh, some of it is just to stay more awake because I have poor sleep and I'm a busy <laughs> mom. And I'm just, I do want the energy to get through my home spinning class. And, um, but uh, do we, I feel like I develop a tolerance to it. Is that, should we be taking caffeine, especially if you're doing it as a pill versus a cup of coffee? Should we be taking caffeine pill vacations? <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question because if we do deal with the performance end of this, if you went cold turkey, let's say for seven days on caffeine, then you took caffeine, you actually get an enhanced ergogenic effect, but now you're dealing with seven days of, of, of a potential headache. So what's the other alternative? The other alternative is actually to use a higher dose before a race. So, you know, I deal with a lot of endurance athletes. So before a race, instead of the normal 200 milligrams you take before training, take 300 milligrams and you'll get a an ergogenic effect. Me personally, there's no way I'm not drinking coffee. I'm drinking coffee every day. It's the first thing. When I wake up, I go straight to the coffee maker. I hit the on button and I listen. I wait for it to drip and then I'm ready to go. But um, I would not do a seven day holiday off caffeine. I mean, the headaches would be, I think. I mean, yeah, you'll get yeah, over yeah. the headaches, but still it's a pain. No, I think that's a good point. So what about, um, you have any opinion on um, green tea extract? Because my understanding was that in addition to having modest amounts of caffeine, there is some uh, benefit in terms of um, fat oxidation during a workout. Have you read that data? Yeah. And that's fat oxidation for the regular person is fat burning. Let's just keep it simple. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The yeah, because it has caffeine and has EGCG in it. Um, there is data on green tea extract enhancing and fat burning is kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird moniker because to most people they're thinking, wait, so fat is melting? Well, not technically, it's not melting off your body. You just help utilize I it fuel more. <laughs> right. <laughs> Imagine if it was that easy. Um, it's not as effective as actually pure caffeine. Green tea, the dosing of caffeine is actually quite low compared to coffee. So yeah. some people like it. I mean, most athletes I work with, none of them ever take green tea extract. They're almost always going for the pure caffeine.
Yeah, well, I see a different population than you. I wish I saw more <laughs> athletes, but um, <laughs> c'est la vie. Um, but I do think, I, I, you know, what I'm doing, and, and obviously, honestly, the purpose of the podcast is to give practical advice. So, I mean, I think, you know, if there is any benefit, I wonder, I mean, if there's products out there that have added caffeine with the green tea extract, because if I can give anybody a little metabolic advantage, I'm looking for cumulative, small benefits whenever I'm trying to help people improve their body composition. So these, and these things add up. So if I can give you a little bit of a boost during the workout, you work out harder, you build more muscle, you burn more calories, you may add, you know, different, uh, supplements. Is there anything else that you would recommend? Um, I think, well, on the performance side, I I would definitely recommend the, uh, amino acid beta alanine. Now, beta alanine is um, it's a it's a non-essential amino acid, so you don't need it in your diet per se. But when you consume beta alanine, it combines with another amino acid called histidine, and it forms this compound called carnosine, not to be confused with carnitine. But carnosine is in skeletal muscle, and it acts as a buffer. So when you work out hard, you know you produce a lot of acid. Your muscle pH drops. Having that ability to buffer it will allow you to work out a bit harder. And there's really good data on beta alanine showing that it can improve performance, particularly in those, if you're doing like interval training or HIIT training, or, I mean, if you're doing spin classes, typically a lot of that involves high intensity interval training, beta alanine will definitely help. So again, it sort of falls under the category of it'll help you train harder. And by training harder, it'll help improve body composition. That's interesting. My husband actually takes beta alanine, but you you do get a little bit of, um, Tingling in the face, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so people, if that, you know what, I'm going to try it before spinning. So, what would be that? What's the half life of that? What should I? When before spinning should I take it? Well, it's it's more a chronic dosing. You'd have to take oh. roughly four grams a day for four to six weeks before you get uh, performance enhancing effect. So, you got to be on it for at least a month, a month and a half. Okay, so it has no acute effect, no, no. short term, no fast. Anything, no. anything fast? I'm looking for fast, practical. <laughs> I'm looking for what can make me better tomorrow. No, uh, actually, um, the data on beetroot juice or the nitrates, those, um, you know, by enhancing O2 delivery to muscle, that actually has an acute effect. I mean, it's it, the data on it's pretty cool. Too bad that stuff tastes like you know dirty socks, but um, pretty cool stuff. That's what I was going to ask. Do we have to have the juice? And then if it's loaded with sugar, to me, that just offsets the benefit. Is there any other way I can have it? I think I think the reason they add sugar is it tastes so bad. Um, if you get the stuff without sugar, it's, I mean, I almost throw up, to be honest. Some people, they just hold their nose and they, they chug it. But I'm like, wow, this stuff tastes so, they got to do something to the taste. I mean, yeah. but if you can withstand the taste, yeah, they have no, stuff that's natural. Okay. Is there any is there any particular dose that would be effective or? Well, I usually I try to remember simple stuff like if you weigh, you know, 150 pounds, roughly 900 to 1000 milligrams. Um, And then you just titrate the dose higher if you're way more, a little lower if you weigh less. Um, So, yeah, I always think think of one gram, basically one gram dose or 1000 milligrams. Okay. I'm going to see if I can find one that doesn't taste like dirty socks because you've really <laughs> sold that to our audience a lot. But all right. Well, we're out of time. Is there any any final thoughts that you want to share with us about how the average person can implement tools from sports nutrition to optimize body composition? 
Yeah, I'm a firm believer. Do the simple things. And to me, this is the simplest thing. After you work out, whatever your workout is, do something you like. Have a post-workout shake. Make sure it's about 40 grams. That way, it's a convenient time to get a lot of protein when you're you're basically you're you're doing nothing other than maybe driving home. So get that 40 gram shake right after you're done workout working out, and then maybe an hour or two later get your regular meal in. That I think will go a long way. Well, that's simple enough. And you think 40 grams for both men and women? It shouldn't be a little bit more if you're a five two woman and a little bit. I mean, a well, little bit less if you're a five two woman. Sorry. <laughs> Well, actually, that is a high dose for women, but it's one way to just get a lot of protein in. And that's why, I mean, if you want to be more, more, I guess, calculated, you could say 20 to 40 grams, 20 for a woman, 40 for a man. But I just say go to high end and someone will say, well, what about 30 grams? Oh, yeah, 30 grams is great, too. But aim for 40. And if you get 30, hey, that's good, too. All right, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the 20 to 40 range because a lot of the products out there, the convenient ones, the mm-hmm. ready to drinks, usually have about in the neighborhood of 20, um, that sort of thing. But all right, well, this has been great. I have learned a lot. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank been you fun. for joining us. Where can people go to learn more about your work, the journals you're involved with? Where can they learn more about sports and nutrition? Yeah, the easiest place to go would be the International Society Sports Nutrition website. That's ISSN.net, ISSN.net. And of course, you'll see our conferences. They're posted there. And our next conference is June 16 to 18, Fort Lauderdale Beach. Um, Two and a half days of sports nutrition and sports science. Well, you'll have to share with me some of the exciting research that comes out of that, because I think this is a really cool topic. And I think everybody should consider themselves as an athlete on some level. I I just like that mindset. Um, And and there's just so much to learn from sports nutrition. So thank you again. You've been listening to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have ideas for other topics you'd like covered, message me, email me. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Everywhere podcasts are available and comment. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. Well, just tell me what you like. You can tell me what you don't like on the side. No, I'm just kidding. Hope you have a healthy day. Thanks again.